sun. Having a good time. Having a good time. Shooting star. Ladies and gentlemen, loyal listeners of Married to the Movies, welcome to 2019. And this year we hope to generate more than one podcast. That's right. Rather than make this an annual event, we've decided to get our acts together. And to kick off the year, Doug and I have decided that we would have a chat about the seven formative films that we just recently watched together on our vacation to America to have Christmas with Doug's family. Yeah, some people travel home for, you know, seeing family or seeing attractions or whatever, but um, that's one of the real advantages is, of course, you get to see movies before they come out in New Zealand or, you know, if you're on the plane well after, but you get to see them again. Mm. Uh, And while we'll focus on our theatrical experience, there was one movie that um, sort of brought together our entire trip, which is um, steadily increasing at my ranks of the best films of 2018. Absolutely. Game Night. So, Game Night, Doug and I had watched when it was in the cinema in New Zealand last year, found it an unexpected joy. We'd skipped the uh, screening of it because it all seemed a bit, oh yes, yet another Jason Bateman comedy from the director of, of Vacation and Horrible Bosses and... So we went along to see it uh, in a, a moment of quietude in our lives and we're f- thoroughly delighted, I think, weren't we? Rachel McAdam, Jason Bateman. So imagine our delight when on the aeroplane in New Zealand, God bless him, uh, on the 16th of December last year, Game Night presented as an opportunity to rewatch. And we, uh, we have a habitual uh, act of uh, getting our screens next to each other and pressing them at the same time. We and... did have a bit of trouble the first time we used to do this because Doug's version of one, two, three is that he presses the button on three, whereas I go one, two, three, press. So now we sorted that out. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of difficulties you have to overcome in the first couple of years of marriage. Particularly if one's American and one is not mm. American. But anyway, is we sorted why? it out. That's exactly <laughs> why. So um, so we sorted it out and uh, watched Game Night in parallel. It was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, and it just gets better with each um, viewing. I think the first time because there's quite a bunch of twists and turns near the end and it feels a little bit stop starty or you know mm. when you think it's going to end and then it continues but actually uh and I wasn't super eager to go see it again because I felt like oh, I knew what happened but actually it's all just fits so much better together a second time absolutely and, and you get all those little gags and the little one-liners <laughs> so much more I think it might be that although listeners may be interested to know that I read or heard somewhere and I I stick by this that in aeroplanes in order to lull the um, travelers into a perhaps a false sense of calm and security they do flush our atmosphere with more oxygen um, and I believe that that has the effect of our finding films either much funnier or much sadder, much more emotional. And I've certainly found that in my legitimate experience. Films that I have in the past derided as being stupid are suddenly hilarious on the plane. So Game Night, certainly. It was terrific in the, the heightened atmosphere of an aeroplane, wasn't be, it? You say that. I couldn't make my way through Natural Libra when I watched that on a plane. So, so if it's so not maybe funny, it's just then... Me. <laughs> well, yeah, or, or maybe it's just that terrible of a movie. Come Christmas time, we're hanging out with the fam, and uh, we put Game Night forward. The fam had seen it as well, albeit only once, I think, to our two times. Certainly, I, I don't think my parents had seen it. No, but our, our, our brother and sister-in-law had seen it. We should paint the picture. It's New Year's Eve, and um, unlike New Zealand, where if you want to stream something, you've got a choice of Netflix originals and not much else. Um, my brother has all these streaming services, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, HBO, Go, all the world these is things. his oyster. Yeah. And so as, as is often documented, uh, 
overwhelming choice creates paralysis. So um, we're sitting around waiting for New Year's Eve and um, having drunk all we're going to drink if we're planning to stay yeah, away. I think, I think it's that we peaked. I think we peaked too soon, to be honest with you. And if I may say, as a New Zealander who is habitually used to celebrating the New Year ahead of the rest of the world. Boy, this sort of, how many hours later? 20, <laughs> 21, 21 hours, hours later. I'm like, sheesh, we've, they've done all this. So therefore, you know, let's move this party on. Well, also here when you in New Zealand, when you have New Year's Eve, it gets dark at what, 10 p.m.? Yes, that's true. Whereas in Colorado, it was dark by 5 p.m. True. So we had to wait our way through seven So we hours had to fill night. the time and we watched game night again. And third time, still a charm. That's absolutely <laughs> right. Better, just every little line pops out, you know, you're a double threat, brains and British, which is uh, immediately a callback. I mean, Sharon Harkin is just delightful, and it just feels so customized to each of the actors in it without... Mm. Um, without fe- feeling like they're improving, and apparently they're not. I realize quite, now that yeah. we could probably do a podcast on game night and do it for the full <laughs> 45 minutes. But um, again, listeners may be interested to know, and if you haven't seen it, you really should, and we won't give anything away, but the title Game Night sort of uh, sort of sets the scene for a bunch of sort of middle-class, middle-aged couples who get together for a game night every, I think they do it weekly, maybe monthly, but... Regularly, it's not More regularly clear, than yeah. we see our friends, anyway. It's <laughs> extraordinary. And, uh, and then that things go excitingly awry but it's so well written and apparently Jason Bateman uh, the the part was written for Jason Bateman and he was brought on in uh, year it took years for the film to come out to be produced but uh, he was brought on pretty early on and beautifully they've paired him with Rachel McAdam who Doug and I do agree has wonderful comic timing and and the two of them have She's a real been really chemistry used in comedy mm. and she really steals the film in so many scenes mm. um, one, one of my favorite scenes of the year if not my absolute favorite is when she's gone to a convenience store after Jason Bateman's been shot and they have to uh, treat a a wound, uh, which is just a cascading moments of various gags playing against each other mm. uh, whilst um, she just underlines them with perfect both physical comedy and line Absolutely. Readings. So Game Night absolutely sets the tone for our holiday brilliantly mm. on that aeroplane out and you should all totally watch it if you haven't already and if you did see it once or even twice give it another go. Yes. Uh, and our first uh, destination Los Angeles uh, and I'd hope to see all sorts of movies in Los Angeles, but um, we weren't there for very long, and actually some of the um, repertory houses didn't really have the programming that we'd hoped for, but we did get in one Christmas-themed uh, movie, that traditional Yuletide favorite, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Mm, indeed we did. It had been years <laughs> since I'd watched Eyes Wide Shut, and I thought for some reason I never needed to see that film again. Um, and actually... Sitting in a repertory theatre, it was pretty good. And given that it's how long? Two and a half? Three? Three and a half? Sixty minutes? It's, it's not an incredibly bad. long film. Uh, well, it's a, and, and the pacing of that doesn't uh, contribute to matters, I'm sure. And yet, um, it was still engaging the whole way through, I found. Yeah, I, I saw it twice originally when it came out in 98 or 99 in the theatre. And I, mm. all I've remembered really was that... I remember talking to some older people who I was in a book club with and who found, I think, the relationship stuff a bit more resonant than myself as a uh, young young single man mm. did. Uh, so I remembered things more about the film grain and the score and some of the um, more salacious elements, perhaps. Mm. 
Uh, oh, look, you and me both. I remember. <laughs> I remember the boobs. Yeah. And I and I think to be fair, sort of you know, I, and forget about hashtag me too. I think it's just that I've grown up and I'm a, a bit more of a right thinking woman, not as in right, right thinking. Wing. No, <laughs> as in like correct thinking as in woman. Conservative. <laughs> right. And I'm like, really? Do we need this many boobs in one film? And um, it and and ridiculously skinny models and but all the things that I get it and that those were all mm. the sort of that was the way films portrayed women in in the well since forever but certainly in the 80s and 90s in a big yeah. way i mean it is based on a book that's called dream novel and a part of it is supposed to have this dreamlike quality and so a part of that is fantasy and of course. so there is an element to that also interestingly one of the things that reasons that i we made time for it in the limited time we had in la was because it was supposed to be shown on 35 millimeter oh yes and we got there and it turned out not to be now one thing about the original u.s release of Eyes Wide Shut is during this orgy scene where Tom Cruise is walking around ponderously and what and watching this happen. Uh, the original American release, the film was digitally censored to have shadowy figures in front of some of the more detailed copulation scenes. Oh, really? Yeah, and so I hadn't seen any of that before, and so I suspect the last-minute substitution, although I can't confirm it, yeah. was that they had the choice of, like, do we show the a nu- censored the film nudie version, right. or digitally uncensored, because a lot of people consider that digital censorship that was created after Kubrick had died... Um, More of a vandalism, yeah, sure, uh, sure. And you know, it it seemed to work fine at the time. It, it twenty years later, it's hard for me to mm. contrast the two, but. Um, you certainly got <laughs> more of the, the precise detail of what was going on between <laughs> maybe, these. Maybe more than you needed. I guess it depends how uh, how vivid your imagination is, whether sure. it was working Oh, look, no, I, I, was, I was quite, when I say shocked, I suppose what I mean is, it's still essentially to me, as risque as it was at the time, it's still a Tom and Nicole film. Mm. And... Um, and therefore, in exactly the scene you mentioned when he is walking around and there's sort of a, not exactly a first person shot, is there, but sort of a, a dolly shot um, mm. through the, the labyrinth of uh, that den of iniquity. Um, I was quite, yeah, I was quite taken aback at, at um, <laughs> what was being shown. I do think there's a lot more that the film has to offer. And one thing I really appreciated this time was a lot of the um, subtle touches and things like production design. Um, I just kept fixating on the Christmas trees. And it is a film set around Christmas. Mm. I wasn't being entirely cheeky. And in fact, the programming for LACMA at that time was unconventional Christmas movies, hence the timing. Um, But you could do a whole video essay on the Christmas trees of Eyes Wide Shut from, you know, the, the very opulent and the artificial to the barely a physical tree in the call girls, um, a uh, very tawdry New York apartment, mm, and, mm, and, mm. and so on, and um, and I really love the attention to detail that you could you could then apply almost to any factor of the film, and and we had very different reactions to the performances. I know that was one thing I think I I quite enjoyed Nicole Kidman's performance, whereas I think you found oh, her quite found, stagey. I found her very, very stagey. Um, I think particularly in that opening scene where she and uh, Mr. Cruz go to the party, and he wanders off. And, uh, and she's sort of almost seduced by that older gentleman who's a count or whatever. Um, and she's tossing her hair back. And I don't know if she's acting drunk or if she is performing like she is drunk or whatever it is. But it all just felt just a little bit silly. But I realized 
sort of almost at the time that I think actually if I was to blame anybody it would be the editor those bloody editors what do mm. they know eh because they were, it just seemed repetitive we would come back to her and she'd do another head toss and another braying laugh or coy look or whatever and I thought well, look we've seen this look six times now you're not advancing the story I get it um, so I think actually probably that's that's what I was objecting to because there were other moments where she was terrific, although you like the bit where she smokes pot and then giggles in and the in the, the floor bedroom. At a certain point. And I, I know that didn't feel credible to me either for some reason. Um, so, and, yeah. and to be fair, when I posted, I'd seen eyes wide shut on Twitter. Somebody responded um, with that scene where Kidman smokes pot, though cringe. Oh. <laughs> and so mm. you're certainly not alone. Um, I think I think there was just um, there's so much repression to the movie, and particularly. Um, because Tom Cruise's character is so repressed mm. for so long, and there's that beautiful moment uh, where he's asked by a call girl what he would like, and he's like, I don't know, what would you recommend? Mm. And you actually think he's not being coy, he actually is so detached. Mm. Um, it's a fascinating You moment. see, I thought he was being coy, but you thought detached, fair enough. Mm. But um, So anyway, interesting to see it, interesting to see it in the, the context of LACMA. Uh, and even if it wasn't on 35mm, perfectly good uh, cinema-going experience for America. Yeah. And then we got on the plane to uh, Denver and uh, very quickly found ourselves in a movie theater again. Now, that Denver's where my brother lives, so we had uh, some overlapping family and some time to ourselves. And so we chose to see Roma, Alfonso mm. Cuaron's uh, new movie. So, as everybody knows, Roma's been on Netflix for probably at least uh, at least a, a couple of months now. A few weeks, I think it was December. Right. And uh, and so definitely in the lead up to its release on Netflix, there was all, oh, you know, anticipation and 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 considerable desperation to see this film. And I think the fact that we re were restrained and saved ourselves for the cinema was absolutely the best decision that we could have made. I um I'm, I'm a shocking person, as poor Doug knows. He, does, he didn't realise this when he married me, but I'm shocking for um, watching things on the television at home and being distracted by getting up to make a cup of tea or deal with the laundry or whatever it might be. And, um, and I knew going into Roma that it was a real blessing that I wasn't in that situation. Not because it's black and white and beautiful, because I knew it was black and white and I knew it would be beautiful, but I did have reason to believe it might be quite languid. Um, and I worry sometimes about my um, increasingly old age uh, attention span. So to be immersed in the cinema in Denver and crucially, we weren't in Dolby Atmos exactly, were we? But the sound no, it was, was sur surround. It was surround, yes. Um, which, as uh, keen listeners will know, was a, a key point in, in yeah, his making was, it. That was something very important to me in wanting to see it in the cinema is that, you know, we only have a stereo uh, set up at home. And uh, he's made some interesting sound design choices in this, particularly that at all points the camera represents... Um, a character. The, the ears. Mm. So, you know, you have, like, if you pan left to right, the sound field moves with. And if you're talking to somebody mm. and then you cut to the reverse, the voice suddenly comes, seems like it's coming from in front of you to behind you mm. and, and these sorts of things, which... Uh, it sometimes worked in, I think, in conventional dialogue scenes, it didn't work so well, but mm. a lot of his um, shooting is these long tracking shots that are immersive, and I think in that it can work 
quite well. And there's a few, as you would expect from the guy who did Children of Men and Gravity, there's mm. a few showstoppers in mm, there. Mm, in terms of tracking shots. Yeah. Yeah, really, really sensational. So yeah. I was utterly immersed in it and completely yeah. enthralled through the whole thing. Yeah, I, I didn't... Down, did you have a strong emotional response yes. to it, though? Because I didn't. I, I got upset many, many times. I don't yeah. really know how much to spoiler it for people, and I think perhaps we won't. But, yes, let's keep um, it vague. Yeah, but the, the story revolves around um, a, a maid in a, uh, in a middle-class household in Mexico City, and her name is Cleo. And uh, gosh, for, a, for an amateur actress... She well, as as in I guess somebody who's never acted before, um, mm. she was absolutely stunning and captivating and so subtle, and uh, and her story really does go on that sort of if you'll forgive the cliche an, an emotional roller coaster, and uh, and I was extremely tied into both the the joys and the the tragedies and the joys and the tragedies and all, all everything that came round, and I think I think for me maybe the opulence and. Uh, scope of the filmmaking sort of worked against that emotional engagement a bit. I mean, it was a, it's a, a stunning accomplishment. And it's designed to evoke awe, and particularly at a, an end scene near the beach, it succeeds in doing what it sets out to do. But it's almost is it's it so too bravura for you, sort of? I, I, I quite like bravura a lot of the time, but I think it just it, it just meant that I didn't get quite the emotional link into it that maybe. I needed, and perhaps if I was bringing more sort of personal uh, connection to the material in a way, that mm. wouldn't have been as difficult. So as, mm. a, as a white male, upper middle class person, but also somebody who's never had a housekeeper, so never had that sort mm. of engagement, um, I mean, I don't want to say it's impossible for me to connect to it, mm. but if it had been shot as, as a Dardenne's film kind of thing, where you're quite close with this person, it's framed in terms of a moral choice as opposed to trying to bring in the larger context of Mexico City and all this and there's quite a few scenes where we move away and get this broader sweep of yeah. the politics of the time that are alien to me. But those weren't the bits that I felt emotionally connected to and I'm thinking of one particular shot uh, that was a very very long held shot, a static shot held on the protagonist uh, with action happening behind her uh, and the action is of the most sort of tragic and devastating kind and and there was no cut whatsoever and and so there was nothing bravura going on mm. there at all if you know what I mean our focus was was very clear and uh, and I found that really devastating so um, as you as you say obviously for an, on an emotional connection level but um, but also very effective because there was nothing else flashy going on. Yeah, so, yeah, and and I, you know, it's something sometimes I just need a second go at a movie <clears throat> to figure out my way into it, and because I'd read so much about the technical yes. uh, things of it, and because, you know, I make a living doing stuff with technical things yeah. with image, I, I was often quite focused on that rather than being with the character. Sure. But um, that I still recommend it, and yeah. I strongly recommend experiencing it in a quality cinema with quality sound if you can. Mm. Um. And now for something completely different. <laughs> then the family uh, arrived. We were all together in Denver. And our wonderful brother slash brother-in-law had booked the whole family tickets to Mary Poppins Returns. And we say the whole family, which should say my uh, parents, uh, my brother, who's around my age, his wife, and uh, their two-year-old son. son and our also, nephew. And also uh, his uh, mother-in-law, who lives with him. So that, you know, we've got a quite wide range of people. Of now, generations yeah. going to see this film. And we have quite a wide range of attitudes going into it. Now I should 
I, I don't want to give a whole lot of context and distract things, but I will say on the plus side, we're going to the Alamo Draft House, which mm. is a chain that we um, actually have a lot of love for because our first trip to Denver, we saw a diehard uh, screening there with mixed beer and uh, food that still so remains. Set, set menu with beer match. That was most one of the most wonderful Christmas experiences ever. And I actually, yeah, I, and I've been many times over the years, so I'm quite fond of that. Um, but I have no fondness for Rob Marshall, the director of Mary Poppins Returns. I saw Chicago 15 years ago and thought, why would you edit that film with a lawnmower? And I uh, have, have, have <laughs> st- studiously avoided the string of musicals he's made since. Mm. And so I've just never seen, I think, Into the Woods and Les Mis, and I don't even know what else he's done. But I've just... Um, and I don't... Uh, Mary Poppins was a film that I saw when I was a kid. I guess it was fine. I don't really remember yeah. it. So, yeah, no interest, um, but no, but not so much that I would stay home. Sure. So I have nothing against Rob Marshall, and I loved Chicago. I haven't seen Into the Woods. Did indeed he direct that one? Perhaps I he did, so. because I guess if Emily Blunt and there Meryl Streep... There was nine, Street, nine as well, that Daniel Day-Lewis Oh, yeah, um, um, yeah, no, that was great. So, yeah, I have nothing against Rob Marshall at all. I, I have nothing particularly for Mary Poppins either. The original, I'm sure I've seen it. I'm sure I know that Dick Van Dyke doesn't know one end of a Cockney accent from the other. Um, and so don't really care. Uh, I mean, you know, Chim Chimney, Chim Chimney. We know all the, the hooks of the songs, but I don't have any great affection for it. Um, but golly, I have great affection for Emily Blunt. And I had actually seen Mary Poppins Returns at the um, Auckland uh, premiere before we went to America. So I was very happy to be seeing it again and loved it even more. I actually teared up every time Emily Blunt came down from the sky, um, I, I, I have no idea why I actually got emotional. And this was during the day, listeners, so, you know, I was drinking ginger ale. Um, <laughs> I was having a beer, but, you know, yeah. still, you know. Um, and I, I liked it a lot more than I expected. Um, I Emily Blunt I'm quite fond of, and Emily Mortimer as well. Yes. Um, so it's a um, dual uh, Emilys in it who are both fantastic Uh uh, and the, from a very early stage, I'm like, okay, so Rob Marshall has clearly calmed down and learned how to, um, you know, pace things and, and to some extent direct a musical scene where you can actually see what's going on. I mm. still don't think he has kind of the scope of showmanship of when you see like those 50s musicals. Mm. I think his choreography is better than his filming of his choreography, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, there's a scene with all those um, lamplighters mm. that... Uh, that you can see that it's a really bravura scene, but it just doesn't quite, for me, sell it. But this is this is minor um, complaints. Minor quibbles. Yeah. Can I, I just say, speaking to that, because the first and second time, the Lamplighters uh, ensemble piece, I, I really did notice as being wonderful choreography. And I actually, um, I, opposite to what you say, I appreciated the relatively... Um, perhaps ordinary camera work because I was able to see what was going on. Mm. I didn't feel it had been, you know, how quite often musical numbers are, are cut to shreds. Um, mm. And so therefore you want longer to be able to gaze upon something that's amazing. And particularly with dance, unless you see a sequence, you you lose it. So I actually liked I, I thought I see, hear what you're saying, and I agree that it's better than it could have been. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of kind of those Busby Berkeley overhead shots where you see things cascading and moving. And I feel like there's a lot of that movement that happens um these are minor complaints uh, you know there's a great scene in the middle where they get lost in this uh china and, bowl yeah and and you know i was actively delighted during that i and mm. i i didn't really expect to get above begrudging tolerance mm. and um 
and I did have a bit of emotion, but um, you know, honestly, see, looking over and seeing my almost two-year-old nephew just entranced yeah. for two you know, hours. Yeah, I, he got a little feisty near the end, but it's an over two-hour running time, yeah. and the Alamo do these morning screenings where the lights are up a bit and they don't have trailers, and and it's they expected get, that yeah, get on with it. Yeah, and um, mm. and so that that also helped me see his face, and so that that was. You know, definitely opened my sympathies to the film even more. Mm. But um, I, we, whereas everyone's raving about Lin Manuel Miranda, um, who famously created and I guess starred in Hamilton, which yes. I know nothing about and haven't seen because it hasn't come here yet. Um, uh, it's he, popular. Sure, I, I, I hear it's popular and good. Well, he's absolutely wonderful, and Emily is wonderful, and everybody in it's wonderful. And I just had such a great time that I would, uh, I'd probably even see it again. I don't think either of us would see again the final movie we saw in 2018 in the theater, uh, Clint Eastwood's The Mule, starring Clint Eastwood mm. as Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I had high expectations for this. Wonderful premise, as, as listeners will probably know, about a retiree who um, decides to become a, um, purely for the money, uh, and and presume and it looks as though with no ethical issues whatsoever, just decides to become a mule for a, um, a local cartel. cartel. Mm. Yeah, he's an ex-florist who um, is his business has been destroyed by the internet, it's implied, and he hasn't been able to adopt with the times. He loses his house. He's been a bad father, and so. Uh, he gets this opportunity, and it brings meaning to his life, and he gets to do these drives across the country. And, mm, and make and, a bit of money. And be vaguely befuddled as he sees lesbians on motorcycles and That's all these right. signs of progress. Or speaks um, to and addresses them as such, Negroes. Which <laughs> yes. is one of the gasp-inducing moments in the film, and luckily the characters in the film also gasp and put him right. I was listening to a podcast yesterday with, um, actually... Uh, Peter Labuza, who we met and saw Eyes Wide Shut with in Los Angeles, and he was talking about Eastwood's films, where it's kind of like sy- sympathetic in a way that a person on the left might be, but it's still fundamentally a right-wing perspective. Mm. And you can tell there's this, like, he's like, look, I'm really a good guy, but I just can't keep up with all this, what do you call black people, or yeah. what do you call lesbians, or whatever. And, and I think for somebody who felt like it, there might be quite a bit to unpick in terms of the, sh- the attitudes towards law enforcement um, and and what it means to be going outside the law and the fact that the time period coincides with, you know, the, the end of the Obama era and what that might have done to mm, mm. the white, you know, the white class uh, and how they, they've been left behind. I just couldn't get excited enough about the film mm. to do that. It's quite... Um, I, I think you found it meandering i found it in some ways best when it meandered and had little asides but it just kind of had nowhere to go other than the repetition of these runs and then bringing in this this I, overheated drama with this mexican drug cartel that yeah was just which wasn't overplayed i mean when we came out we we all agreed it was almost a film that didn't really quite know which genre it was going to adhere to because the mexican cartel stuff had the potential to be thrilling um but sicario it wasn't um, and the family dysfunction stuff had the potential to have real drama, but unfortunately, I didn't like any of the actors particularly, and it felt so cliched. Oh, I've been a bad father. Let me pay for your wedding. 
um, oh, my ex-wife, you know, yeah. won't yeah. forgive me and is dying, blah, verse. blah. I mean, oh, my gosh. And so narratively, it was either full of exposition or it was just kind of really lame. And that, that was annoying. That was disappointing. And also a lot of screen time is given to uh, Bradley Cooper and Lawrence Fishburne and Michael Pena investigating, like, from a very early stage. Because you know. it's based on a real story. So sure. there were actual agents involved, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it is interesting because it, it you kind of going back between both sides, and I never quite figured out why they put so much weight in it, other than if you have Michael Pena in your movie, you put as much of him in and as Bradley, you can. And Bradley because Cooper. Because he livens it up. Yeah, although Bradley Cooper was fine. No, um, that's not the point. I yeah. guess you give Bradley Cooper a lot of screen time because he's Clint Eastwood's mate and they've worked together and he's one of the producers of yeah. the film. Oh, that's true. I guess American Sniper gave Absolutely. him enough money to uh, but you're right. want Brad- to come back for a lesser Bradley's role. Bradley's playing a very straightforward um, DEA agent. Bless him, he's fine, but he's not given anything particularly interesting to do. It's all about Clint. But there's so many scenes of his driving across yet another state where the title card helpfully would say fifth run seventh run exactly just so that we can keep track yeah um so yeah that was a disappointment i don't know it was it was nice enough i mean i I think we've emphasized the negative but i did i did enjoy it i hope i didn't give my father who came with us any uh, retirement ideas (laughs) i i I agree with you like it it could have been a better film however i still cared and wanted to know what would happen and uh, we're about to move on to the next film, the first one. <laughs> Are you of, implying you didn't care and want right. to know what happened? The first one of 2019, which had its issues, and I didn't care what happened. And that film... Aquaman. Or as I, with my New Zealand accent, like to call it Aquaman. But I was really impressed how everyone in the film managed to say Aquaman really nicely. <laughs> Is that the end of things you liked about Pretty Aquaman? Pretty much. Oh, I, now, no. I, do you want to give your list of criticisms, and then I'll tell you why I agree with all of them, but still loved it. Look, to be fair, I knew going into it, um, a very intelligent uh, onto it friend had said to me, Sarah, this film is not for you. And I was like, ah, it's the 1st of January, I'm on holiday, I'm feeling relaxed and forgiving, I'm sure And we're sure back it, to the draft house. Uh, exactly, I'm sure it will be great. And um, I just didn't really care. So, Nicole Kidman was a bit odd in it. She was just a bit awkward at the beginning, but then she's playing a fantasy character's mum, so maybe that's okay. Tim Weir Morrison. Bad hairpiece at the start. Well, very odd the way they tried to make him look a lot younger. I, I, I get what they were trying to do to make him look younger in a flashback so he could then look sort of the age he is now going forward. That's sort of fine, but I just didn't appreciate his accent at all. Basically, he he sounds very Kiwi with a tiny uh, tinge of American, which I think would be consistent with somebody, a Kiwi living in LA. And I get that he and Nicole Kidman were presumably told, just speak in your normal voices. He is, he's wearing a Honamu, and he and his son, Aquaman, um, Hongi, when, they, when yeah. they see each other. It's very implicit that he's a Kiwi and... I think it's fine that he's like this Kiwi that, for reasons that are mysterious, has somehow wound up being a fisherman in Maine that mm. has um, Nicole Kidman wash up on his uh, dock one day and then they create an aqua baby. Mm. And <laughs> So maybe, maybe I mean, you know, I don't have anything against people using a New Zealand accent in a film. I think probably it was just that it was a bit of a mix and it wasn't clear enough to find, I suppose, for me as yeah. to its its purpose. Uh, what else? Uh, there were a lot of fight scenes. Oh, look, bits of it actually were bits of it were very engaging and very well done. Look, director James Wan uh, has done Conjuring movies. He's done Fast and Furious mm. movies, and I really appreciate people who've turned back from the combination of 
Paul Greengrass, Shaky Cam, and Michael Bay, let's put up 15 cameras and see what happens. Mm. An architect really thought out action scenes. <clears throat> and there's a particular sequence in Italy where there's two simultaneous fights going on. And the camera moves between um, Jason Momoa as Aquaman and uh, Amber Heard and their various nemeses. Uh, as they're fighting in different parts of town, just seamlessly, mm. uh, and giving you a sense of the geography the whole time. Um, and there's quite a few set pieces like that that are fun. There's also some just amazing imagery. I, I made the joke on Twitter that isn't really a joke, that there's got to be at least 100 frames in this film, that if you just grab some pointy lettering and put imprecator into the abyss over them would look like a, you know, operatic heavy metal cover. Right. And, you know, either that aesthetic <laughs> speaks to you or it doesn't. And it speaks to me. And, um, and the effects... Um, when they work are amazing. You yeah. will believe that somebody can talk underwater with their hair moving yeah. and not having air bubbles come out. Yeah. And it just kind of works. The hair was extraordinary. And actually, I spent a lot of the time <laughs> noticing the subtle quiver of the hair yeah. and thinking, how do they do this? There's the pull quote, Aquaman, the hair's really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, at, at the same time, you won't believe that a Amber Heard and Jason Momoa were on a dune <laughs> because the, the effects the, are so terrible. The green screen just know? looks awful. And look, say what you like about that. That scene in Sicily, and I appreciate that the camera work was fantastic. To me, it looked like a set from Mamma Mia, or probably yeah. worse, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. <laughs> and so I went to the toilet in that scene, which apparently was a stupid thing to do. Yeah, you missed, all, you missed all the great stuff going sure, on. Sure, but it yeah. looked dumb. So mm. Well, look, lots of the movie is dumb, but a lot of it was dumb fun. And I, I won't make any great claims for it on most levels, but I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the lack of self-seriousness after all these bloody Batman and Justice League movies. Sure. They made the big, stupid movie that knew exactly what it was, and it wasn't pretending to be important, and I think that's an okay thing. Um, just don't go in with any higher expectations that it's going to have the, you know, the, these claims to significance that a Black Panther has or the moral ambiguity of a Dark Knight movie or whatever. And that it's just the sort of movie where, you know, Jason Momoa is getting drunk in a bar and doing selfies or that things are blowing up all the time and there's crazy underwater creatures and you'll have a great time. So moving on to films that do have, or have been... <laughs> have redeeming features. Yes, no, but also have been heralded already as films with um, s significance. Yeah, so we wound, wound our way to Portland, Oregon, um, and we went to a movie theater that means a lot to me, because Cinema 21 is, when I was first getting serious about movies, one of the main theaters in Portland where I saw everything from... Yeah, I read Wild Man Blues to Fireworks to... I saw Singing in the Rain there for the first time, Requiem mm. for a Dream. We could go on for quite a long time, mm. but you won't let me anyway. <laughs> uh, and we saw uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, which is the new film from Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight. Mm. Uh, and I was really looking forward to this film, having really enjoyed Moonlight and having just randomly read If Beale Street Could Talk um, before it was announced that he was making this, which is the only James Baldwin book I've ever read. Uh, and I was a bit nervous because a lot of the strength of the book is the voice of James Baldwin, uh, and I was really curious as to how that would translate in a film. Mm. And there is some elements of voiceover, but there are also quite a few memorable sequences in the book where he's entirely used his formidable powers to you know just completely visualize them now it's not quite as stylized of a film as moonlight is mm. it doesn't have quite the sharp colors and stuff like that but it still has wait you um, mean literally 
Yes, it does. There's like all this primary color work, and I noticed mm. that right from the very beginning. There's a yeah. very there's a relatively long shot of our two protagonists. I would say it's still quite stylized relative to the average film. I'm just saying Fine. compared to Moonlight, which gets quite gaudy in its colors. Okay. Well, all I was going to say is that I noticed that our protagonists, two young lovers, aged. 19 and 22, uh, uh, walking through a park. And I noticed immediately, because I'm a bit of a, a, a one for colour, that um, they're both wearing bright yellow and bright blue. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's on purpose and it's almost a La La Landish sort of choice or whether that's quite credible for how people would have dressed in the... Are we talking 60s? Uh, 50s. I don't think the date is given, but yeah, somewhere in there. 50s yeah. and 60s. So I thought, actually, that the colour was really significant, and I saw a lot of them uh, not exactly mirroring one another, but a, but a lot of complementarity in the production I, design. I think the design is incredible, mm. and I think that, that there's so many superlative elements across the board. The cinematography, the fine use that he gets of detail and black skin, the score, mm. amazing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm not disagreeing about that as well. How did it work for you story-wise, though? So, um, I, because it hasn't come out here yet, has it? No, no, it comes out in March, I believe, now. So. Okay, so, and highly recommended, if you can't tell already. Um, so, basically, um, the story, which I thought was really lovely, it re um, revolves around a, a young woman named Tish, who is 19 and finds out that she is pregnant to her 22-year-old boyfriend friend Alonzo um, or who they all call Fonny um, and um, I don't think it's a spoiler because it happens pretty early on yeah, that, that he, he goes to, to prison for a crime that he um, we would like to believe a crime he didn't commit a chunk of the story is devoted to this possible miscarriage of, of justice and so on but the the emotional core of the story is this young love of, and I just thought it was so beautifully portrayed that these young people had grown up together since their their infancy and had baths together when they were mm. little, which is evoked beautifully, uh, and really know one another in a, a really loving, loving, lovely way. And the fact that we saw it, Doug, on our three-year anniversary um, mm. uh, was really was quite poignant for me because I thought that it really, like Moonlight did, showed love in a very um, authentic and meaningful and special kind of way. Yeah, there aren't many films that focus on softness and tenderness. And um, there's um, not just the love between them, but also the familial love. Mm. When she first explains to her family the situation, which is unfolded very slowly and very delicately... Mm. And, we, and have, we as an audience are like, oh my goodness, how's the mother going to react? How's, how's the, the father, father going to react? react? And yes. all that. And there are manifold pleasures, aren't there, in the way yes. that that all goes down. In the palpable relief and then yeah. when Fanny's family is involved. Uh, and <laughs> we'll leave and, that yes. for people to see for themselves. Yeah. Other than <clears> to say that general part of the film for me is such a dramatically yeah. tense and strong part of the yeah. film. Uh, and this is a thing that the book shares as well is that you know, Baldwin has on his mind more general concerns about what it means to be black in America. Mm. And for me, the um, the strongest point in the film apart from that is when a friend of Fani's, played by Brian Tyree Henry, who's mm. so menacing in Widows, uh, he meets him on the street and uh, brings him, uh, home, brings him home. And over the course of this scene, he goes from this puffed up bravado to just this empty shell. Mm. And it's... Um, and it's beautifully mm. sad and powerful and quiet. Um, but sometimes I just feel like 
all these things fitting together didn't quite gel for me on a first viewing, mm. but neither did they on a first reading. And also there's there's a whole plot element in the third act, which involves Regina King's character going overseas. And that it gets a little funny for me. Yeah, I think you're right. I think narratively... It does feel a little funny. And if you're, I mean, you being the only one of the two of us who's read the read the novel, if that's indeed how it is in the book, then I sort of always forgive mm. a film because what can you do? Yeah. Um, and for me, those sorts of niggles about it were, were absolutely redeemed by beautiful performances, l- lovely camera work around to... Um, beautiful people feeling beautiful things and as you said uh, at the beginning um the even the voiceover you know we what we often say don't we Doug that you know voiceover can so often just be used as a device and it's laziness or it's trite or whatever and and right from the get-go when um this lovely um Tish is speaking in voiceover you can tell that this is just the most beautifully written book by the most intelligent man, which, you know, who James Baldwin uh, was. And he was recently featured in I Am Not Your Negro as well, which if some people might have Fascinating documentary, so worth watching. And I think actually both films were really eye-opening to me in terms of, I, I hate to even say the black experience, but I suppose that's what it is, because I'm patently about as unblack and experienced as it, as it comes. And... Um, it was just, yeah, it's a, it's a really beautifully made film. Interestingly, or not, I gave it four and a half stars, not five, and I can't quite work out what that half star is, but it's probably just that I wasn't completely transported as I was with Moonlight, but, um, mm. but otherwise, just a superb film and some wonderful performances. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think it come, comes about as close to a, a great adaptation of that book as, as is possible as is, to have. As is possible. I mean, yeah. some people have pointed out minor differences in story beats and things that may or may not have been more satisfying. The book has uh, a bleaker ending, um, even though none of the particulars are different, just the, the t- note of tone that right. it ends on. But I feel like the, where it ends here is, is more satisfying to an audience than that ending would be in terms of what you'd want to take out of it. It's, mm. just, it's just a trick of... Mm. They're two different mediums. Sure. So are you happy with what we saw? Is there anything that you wish we'd seen that we missed? No, I don't think so. You don't wish we'd gone to see Bumblebee? Oh, I, I definitely, <laughs> in the same way I shouldn't have seen Aquaman, I didn't want to see Bumblebee. So no, okay. I'm fine with all of that. I can probably wait a little while before we see Game Night again. But uh, that's, no, uh, that's no scourge on the film. Well, I did buy the Blu-ray, so we can watch it whenever. That's true. Okay, well, I think it's time for us to um, we'll go see a movie. Sure. Okay, sounds good. Till next time, this is Doug. And I'm Sarah. And we're married. To the movies. Have a good time, I don't want to stop it.